Today on Everything is Workable, my collaborator is S. Ray Peoples, a mother, educator, social activist, and a member of Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams' Radical Dharma team. S. Ray offers consulting services through Red Lotus Consulting to organizations working on racial equity and justice, and it is from this role that she joins me. We cover a lot in this episode, starting with defining whiteness, cocacity, oh, the cocacity, and liberation. Esdre then talks about the importance of cultivating relationships as part of being able to have authentic conversations about race and the difference between being controlled by versus being informed by anger. I particularly appreciate when Esdre names anger as an expression of the divine. This conversation is a guide and support for anyone in the field of race equity or working on diversity and inclusion in their organization. First of all, Azrae, thank you so much for making time to collaborate on an episode of Everything is Workable. It's about time. Thank you for having me. And it is a high, it's high time for this conversation. This conversation that we have a lot. <laughs> <laughs> time uh, to share because sharing is caring. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and speaking of that, so my first question, my super Buddhist question, which I try to reframe and then it always just comes back to the same thing is what has been your experience of moving from I am suffering to there is suffering, which is really mm-hmm. just to say like, what were things that are formative in you in being able to see the need to be of service in the world? I think for me, the, the shift that occurred ironically was a personal experience that I had had. I experienced a loss, um, a profound loss um, of my brother. And in that sitting with, I am suffering and I'm grieving this very personal and real incident, I was able to also like, I was sitting in my own grief, but I was able to float out of that and observe and kind of like, it, it felt like a out of body experience where I was able to see and bear witness the grief and suffering that my mom was going through, or my sister-in-law was going through my uncles and, and cousins. So it started with me as a nucleus. And then I, I, I was able to really see the suffering of my family. And then in time, I was able to then make connections and bear witness to this like the suffering that was going on outside of my my broader family nucleus so then it moved me from articulating that I am suffering to they are suffering in terms of my family members to we are suffering or there is suffering around us Mm. I mean that's one of those things we get taught again and again about how coming to our own personal experience and connecting with our own experience of suffering is like, you have to start right here. But it does seem kind of counterintuitive. And yet, when you really do sit with it, and you sit with that experience, how it does open you up to seeing how shared it is, even if it's mm-hmm. uniquely personal. Right, it, it is. And, it, you know, like, my, my story is very unique to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yet, there's a common thread in what the suffering that my family members were experiencing and like the broader community. So even though the suffering or the root, you know, like the event or the circumstance may, there are nuances in that. Mm-hmm. If you're in tuned with your own suffering, you can actually see the way in which your suffering is connected to your neighbor two or three doors down. Mm-hmm. And the school in your district who doesn't have enough resources and the, and the children then are suffering like there's a, it's, it's really strange to simultaneously 
feel unique in your suffering and at the same time common in sharing the deep level of pain and hurt. And that that core, that like that threat, I feel like that threads me <laughs> to my family members, to my community members, to my, you know, like moving it from micro to macro is that awareness of that, that thread that will always be there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the threads that connect us. Mm-hmm. So, speaking of then, today we're just, we're really going to talk about systems of power and privilege and oppression, specifically the impact of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And before we jump into that, which, you know, threads that connect us, things that really influence all of us, I think it's really important to name what it is that we're talking about. I often dig into the definitions of a word because it's really easy to use a word. This was actually something I received in a wonderful class that I just had with Rhonda McGee. She said, like, we can throw a word out there and this Mm -hmm. is paraphrasing and think that we all know what we're talking about, but Mm -hmm. we have to be really careful and actually clarify what the word's actually pointing to less than just what's the word that we're using. Right. So some words for you kind of flash what are your definitions or understanding of starting with whiteness? Mm-hmm. So for me, whiteness is when I, when I say whiteness, I'm referring to basically a tool and it's a tool that's used to sustain white supremacy. When I use it, I'm using it in a, as a way to um, that's it's characterized by several things. Right? like unexamined privilege. Whiteness can also include an unconscious perception of being white as the norm. And so then everything that is not white is somehow the default is like abnormal or ethnic or unique, whatever nice or political word that you want to frame it. it there's some um, connotation of it being abnormal or other than. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another characteristic of whiteness, I would say, would be acute discomfort with interrogating systems and policies or even silence with being willing to um, interrogate and peel back layers of systems and policies within our culture from a racial lens, right? So bypassing the race talk or any kind of um, analysis through a racial lens whatsoever is also I would I would say how I'm defining whiteness. And so for me I think that because I I really hold on to the notion that whiteness is a tool. And if that's the case, I, I do think that anyone can actually wield it. Anyone can pick up whiteness. It is not germane to white folks and white community. Although for me I would say that the harm that is done by whiteness hits very, very much, very differently on black and brown bodies when it's used by white people versus when whiteness is used amongst ourselves and ourselves, I mean, within my community, the black community. Mm-hmm. Very thorough. Thank you. There's a lot there that I'm going to come back to and unpack. <laughs> Particularly, I have questions about whiteness as a norm or centering whiteness in conversations, mm-hmm. <laughs> particularly mm-hmm. conversations around addressing white supremacy um mm-hmm. another word for you caucasity oh the caucasity i love that word <laughs> so for me I, I i would say like there are there's a level of whiteness that you see every day like being a black woman i can pick up whiteness i can see it in everyday conversations i can see it when in the coffee shop for example when a, a white woman bumps into a black woman and the white woman just looks like how dare you be in my space right 
you know, in conversations in terms of holidays, typical whiteness might show up whereas, you know, a, a Black child wanting to celebrate Kwanzaa, for example, and their, their parents saying like, well, Kwanzaa's a made-up holiday, right? When, when all holidays are made up, including Eurocentric holidays, right? So those are like typical, very everyday occurrences. And then you have caucasity, right? Where it's just so bombastic. Caucasity is really whiteness plus audacity mm. <laughs> is really caucasity, right? So there are the everyday occurrences of whiteness that you see. And then there's like the WTF moments, right? Where whiteness is just showing up in the worst, most absurd grotesquely audacious ways that there's actually no other word <laughs> in my mind or in the, uh-huh. in the dictionary that would best describe it other than caucasity. And, and, and that's what you have. For me, there are several examples. There would be the example of Rachel, like Rachel Dolladell, who just woke mm. up one morning and was like, I'm going to decide I'm Black. And it's just like negating the whole Black experience and the lived experience that goes on to being Black. You then can just say, I, I actually am going to take all of the goodness of Blackness and just wrap myself in that. Mm-hmm. That is That it would be one example or... In my opinion, I would say 45 is mm-hmm. the embodiment of caucasity, the way in which he shows up in spaces, simultaneously puffing himself up at the expense of dehumanizing others. Just his claim to everything and everyone, whenever he wants it, however way he wants it, is quite a demonstration, I would say, of caucasity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of a really good example myself from I'm reading Mindful of Race by Ruth King right now. Mm. And this often happens to me when and I think this is I will tell people the way that you get racialized as white in Canada is very different from how it's taught in America. And the so it's it's still there. Newsflash mm-hmm. Canadians totally racist (laughs) despite what people like think but that the dynamics are different right and the narratives can be really different and so for me i i can see (laughs) cacacity in americans much in white americans much better than i can see in white canadians a lot of the time because you know this is the way that i was influenced by it so ruth king has like for example this one story in early on in the book she talks about a woman, a black woman who comes to her and shares a story about her white friend of like 25 years saying, you've always looked like Aunt Jemima to me, (laughs) (laughs) which is that like little bit, there's that subtle whiteness where you're like, whoa, what do you, you don't see that that's a problem. And then the cacacity of it is that when she says that's not okay, her friend's like, why did you have to make it about race? (laughs) Right, I was like, what? Yeah. Like, how, yeah. how is it about anything else? <laughs> Enter caucasity, yeah. Enter caucasity, um, so, yeah. Are there, um, and there's, a, there's so many, like, um, the whole notion, like, there's even a meme about it where getting charged 100 bucks to find out where, we're, where our ancestors come from. And so the meme is like, you know, white people are wild um, because they kidnap you, then they charge you, like, $99.99 on Ancestry.com to show you where they took you from. It's just like, <laughs> mm. like how? Yeah. On what, on what level is that like appropriate or, you know, beneficial? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so like, yeah, I feel like Concaspy is all around us. You only need to just kind of sit down and take a minute to observe how it's playing out in our lives. 
Yeah. I think also like the level of bafflement to it. I'm really aware that both of us are laughing a lot through all this, but it's really painful. And, it is. And, and it's also, you know, in my experience, I'll, I'll read these, I'll read these examples. I'm like, who are these people? And why mm-hmm. am I not there to smack them when they say these things or do these things? But that that's also being really aware of like the defense mechanism we have around the fact that we're like, oh, this is so deeply ingrained. I have to laugh at it because otherwise it's really disheartening oh yeah very disheartening (laughs) discouraging and like absolutely the laugh the laugh isn't like necessarily to say like it's so comedic but like you said you know in situations in which it's it's just so it can be so dire like part of surviving and um, being around another day to to figure out how to stand against whiteness or caucasity is laughing through it like that is that's actually um and and to realize like that's okay. You can act, you can you can smile at the storm. For me, that's what laughter does. For recognizing that it's there and saying like, okay, you know, I'm gonna stand here and I see you. I see it, and it allows me, I think, to move through those situations with a higher dose of grace and grit and grit. Actually. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. I'll I'll come back to that one too. Last word I'm going to throw at you. Liberation. Mm. Liberation for me is the agency to live and be how I, however way I choose. And choosing how I want to live, giving people in my community around me, others around me, the permission and the invitation to do so for themselves. That's what liberation, like in a nutshell, <laughs> the 30-second pitch would be. Um, Liberation, I, I think also for me entails the cultivation of self-love, the kind of love that you need to sit with yourself and to explore yourself, to figure out parts of you that you were never introduced to, that others were never introduced, um, but to have a love that allows you to explore so deeply, to mm-hmm. even begin to articulate fully what it means to live how you want to live right we have a super like i have a superficial like a surface type response to what that means in terms of like my rights you know i have obviously reproductive rights you know stepping outside and not being feared and you know like fearing for my life all of those things matter but then liberation goes even deeper when creating a like a a cradle for me to a cradle of love for me to kind of explore more parts, deeper parts of myself and to let that emerge and come out and, and to feel safe enough for those parts of me to, to be fully expressed in the world. Yeah, that's perfect. (laughs) (laughs) I think I like experience of sort of glimpses of liberation and I just listening to you speak, I was thinking about what it was for me to be able to find a way of naming and expressing myself as a queer person in the world. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, it does like glimmers of that, right? Being able to go deeper about it being so much more than just um, surface experience or outside perception and really about like a very felt sense of who we are as a human being and that our expression as a human being is as valid as any other expression of being a human mm-hmm. being. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so it's that liberation that allows you to dive deeper, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. um, and to, to explore. Because, I, I mean, like, 
it's fine that we are expressing ourselves in this way now, but we evolve and we're not one dimensional. So even in, in terms of like our race and our gender, our sexual orientation, how we are presenting right now in this moment is all well and good. That's fine. But it can take on something totally different depending on how deep you want to go. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, there, there might not even be terms and names and we might not even have language for all of who we are in liberation. And that's, that's exciting and that's okay. Liberation allows us to be in, in those identities and in, our, in those expressions, regardless of if there's, there's terms or language or, you know, categories for it in mm. our modern society. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So thinking about that, on that note, mm. diversity and inclusion and culture change. And Ooh. Ew. Um, <laughs> and I, I think, yeah, it's very juicy. There's a few things, there's a few different questions mm. or ideas that I have, but I guess like first thing that I would like to hear is just sort of like, what, what do you see as, because this is, these are trendy, right? Every, everyone's mm-hmm. got a diversity and inclusion manifesto these days or team or whatever it is um so what do you see (laughs) as the pitfalls in that well the main pitfall i think is the way in which even the word diversity is being used to get the coins and dollars and the commodification of it Mm -hmm. um like using diversity in a way that just generates money for an organization in particular at the expense of um, black and brown bodies within the organization feeling like it is a welcoming environment or an environment in which their their existence is seen and heard, right? So I, I would say like that's the main pitfall. I think I might have mentioned in, in previous conversations that I worked at a camp this summer as the director of operations. And so that serving as the director of operations and at that camp gave me so much more insight in terms of like all of the pitfalls, like all of the things that was wrong <laughs> when we're using diversity and inclusion and equity in a space, particularly in organizations that are white led, right? So several things emerged for me in that <laughs> experience, but like the three most important lessons that I learned was that number one, like diversity, just because the um, an organization or, or a space can claim diversity, it does not mean that, that it is welcoming for all. Like, it does not mean that all are welcome mm. in that space. The second observation I had was for an organization to say, to be able to claim diversity. So diversity does not absolve an organization. It's not a bypass card from an organization doing what is required. And one of the things that's required of them is to pause and to interrogate the impact of their decisions, of their actions, of their objectives, of their like communication systems, all of those things to examine to what extent is creating a welcoming environment for the diversity that's already there, right? And so that's the second thing. The third lesson I, I had was diversity, it, it just is. It isn't going to shift any power. And when we're talking about progressive or transformative change or creating environments that can hold all of us, it requires, like, in order for historically silenced voices or marginalized bodies to be empowered, that actually means that power has to be given up 
by white folks, right? So that there's a redistribution of it. So just because you have diversity doesn't mean that the power shifts in a way that works against causing harm from whiteness or causing suffering from whiteness. And so you actually have to put a little bit more elbow grease in the environment. Yes, it's great to have the diversity, but then like, what all are you doing to remold power in your workspaces? So those were those those would be like the the main pitfalls I'm sitting with these days. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is an interesting one because like in, in all of this work around social change, you've got these dominant narratives. So we're talking about being in North America, specifically in the United States where you're doing most of your work. So because of a legacy of colonialism mm-hmm. and the creation of whiteness and white supremacy, these are the legacies that we're living with. And if you align, like you were saying, right, none of us aren't influenced by whiteness. But if you are aligned with that in your identity, it can be a lot harder to see, right? Which is why it's all the more important for anybody racialized as white to like do that work because of this power that it creates, the power imbalance that it creates. And so mm-hmm. the thing that I always struggle with is because like, again, as someone who's queer, <laughs> uh, I was like, oh, look at this dominant narrative of heterosexuality that doesn't fit. That's like really obvious to me, even if I can't name it because I didn't have language about for it for a long time. But you know, by the time I was like 12, I was deeply suspicious that something was up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Something just isn't sitting right here. Something's not right here. <laughs> and so I feel like that's given me, I don't know, I think I'm going in a few different directions here. I know, I know like we talk about privilege, what is privilege? And I was like, I think I'm actually like deeply privileged because I can see that dominant narrative that if you are heterosexual in the world, you can't necessarily see so easily. But because of that, then I'm also like super suspicious and kind of how do I put it? I, I tell people that I'm like, I'm kind of like edgy and deeply paranoid about ignorance in myself around mm-hmm. whiteness, right? Mm-hmm. Because I know that it's all been framed for me to not be able to see it. Um, right. So I guess the, the question that I have for you is what has been your experience of supporting people? Because like you can only meet people where they're at, right? But supporting right. people in being able to shine a light and actually see how whiteness gets centered and mm-hmm. successfully like <laughs> help them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Help me help you. Yeah. Help, yeah. Yeah. so the question is how have I done that yeah what have been your experiences of of like you know working with some white folk and having them like oh oh my god there it is yeah so what I what I've um, found very helpful is setting up the relationship for success knowing that I eventually like these kinds of conversations would will be had but in the initial stages of I'm thinking I'm what comes to mind is both a personal and working relationship I had with several white women who were members of a national social justice organization. And what was helpful for me in my experience was that early on, I was able to establish very strong bonds, personal bonds with these individuals that went way beyond like our shared desire and ultimate goal of doing our part in dismantling white supremacy, which is all well and good. But like we broke bread together. We ate together. Mm. Um, We enjoyed birthday and dinner parties together. They were a part of celebrations for my son and I with their family 
there was much love, care, and attention placed around forming those personal bonds, right? And forming a deep sense of interdependence and connectedness in community. So that was already laid. That, that foundation of deep bonds was laid so that when it came time, and eventually it did, where there was a situation in which I felt that actions by their organization was in fact promulgating versus dismantling whiteness and white supremacy, I was able to be very direct with them. Mm -hmm. And we were able to meet around the same table that we had shared breakfasts and dinners and you know, cocktails. And so that meeting place was like, it anchored us in love and it allowed me to be clear and direct in, in terms of what I was trying to get at in terms of the actions of the organization. And, and so it, it allowed it to be received because it, they already knew that it was coming from a place of love. And I would also say that in, it's been my experience that when I've had those conversations with those who I've formed bonds with, those relationships were able to hold all of the emotions that come with my, as a Black woman, illuminating, right? <laughs> um, all of the fucked upness of this situation, right? Like, so I could come into the situation and be very angry, right? I was mm -hmm. very angry and I was very hurt. On their end, they were very embarrassed, right? They, these are like deep allies, deep in the trenches, and like they were vulnerable. So all of them nuances and the multi-levels of emotion, human emotions in those conversations, if it weren't for our strong bonds and the, and the way in which we were already personally connected, we, it would not have been able to hold all of the emotions that go into dissecting and interrogating and, and, and critically analyzing to, to a sense of like minute, <laughs> like detail, all of the actions and all, all what is wrong with an action, right? You know, in that situation, I felt very blessed to be able to have those difficult conversations and walk out of it with still my personal connection and bonds intact, which I've had it the other side where I didn't, right? Because when you're in a work environment, you have to put in a little bit more work Whereas for me, it's been a bit more difficult to form those bonds. And so mm -hmm. in those situations, I've been intentional about the extent to which I allow my emotions to freely flow. So I might not show as much anger in that situation. I might just do what I need to do to get my head right, to be very like calm, and st but still very direct and unrelenting. Um, I've had to be willing and comfortable with discerning who my audience is and, and understanding my personal bonds mm -hmm. before entering into those relationships so that either way, there's learning that, that comes out of it. Yeah. So to come back to that grace and grit thing and falling on mm -hmm. the grit side of stuff, there's this, the piece that you wrote on feminism on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. And there's, there was a bit in it that I just, I loved it. I was like, yes, thank you. Uh, you said the, the high road, brackets, mm -hmm. wherever the hell that is, <laughs> <laughs> does not involve the recognition of feelings of hurt and outrage. And I really love exploring the role of anger, particularly because anger as an emotion is an incredibly powerful one. There's a lot of energy in anger. And mm -hmm. if you've been 
socialized as a woman and particularly like you've named it, there's that trope of the angry black woman. Um, mm -hmm. That power is taken away from you through cultural narratives, but there's so much wisdom in it and there's a lot of energy in it that's, that can be used really well. So what, what do you see as the difference between being controlled by anger versus being informed by it? Mm. I've been learning <laughs> that um, what, what's been the difference for me, I think, is the times in which I have been controlled by anger, I've fallen out of my seat of compassion or love hmm. or out of my commitment of wanting to interact from that seat, from, from being rooted in compassion. When I've gotten off of my path, gotten off of my seat, so to speak, my anger then ruled me and took me into a place that I would not ne have necessarily gone had I been seated in my, in my place of love. It's very much destructive. It's no holds bar. Like my words then are used not to fortify, but really to like just tear down things and not, not really counting the cost. Being controlled by anger has, um, it, it's resulted in damaged relationships, right? That either has taken years and time to repair or they were deemed unsalvageable. So that's, that's when anger controls you. While on the other hand, for me, when, I'm, when I feel securely like nestled and having like done my personal work, meditation, I'm eating right, I'm getting like my water, I'm taking care of myself and my needs and I'm just resting, I'm a potted plant in this soil mm -hmm. of love, then my actions are more in tune with love, right? So like it can be both angry and loving. I can say very forcefully my positions and still hold it in a way where the person receiving my message doesn't feel like I've just shredded them to pieces, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it, it allows me to be very intentional with the way in which I use my body language even and my words and and my spirit and my energy to speak truth and hold the truth of the person in front of me being human and being deserving of, of love at the same time that I'm wanting to communicate something very difficult. That's been the difference for me. Mm -hmm. I would be interested in knowing like what, what's been the difference for others. I think that's a really good question in mm -hmm. terms of like being steered by anger versus integrating it into your love work. Yeah. Oh, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. I, it's something, it's a conversation I do try to have with people quite often, particularly with anybody that I am aware probably has not been, uh, like has received very heavily the message that anger is not okay. I really appreciate as a Dharma practitioner, particularly in Tibetan lineages, the use of wrathful deities as signs of wisdom, right? And like, I, mm. I you can look at uh, Mahakala, for example, and be like, what's like, that's wisdom. That's a manifestation of wisdom surrounded by fire with like a necklace of human heads. <laughs> right. You know? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> and, and it's rooted in it. Yeah. That deep sense of love. Like for me, I know my experience has always been like, I love what you said about being a potted plant in the soil of love that mm -hmm. when I express anger or I'm informed by anger from a place of love, I don't discount whoever or whatever situation I'm engaged with. Right. Like right. I, I'm like, you are equally being harmed by this system. 
it's the same but different, right? Like the the harm you're experiencing, you know, like it's it's looking at the current occupant of the White House and being like, that's what suffering looks like. You are right. not winning at life. This is not no. a happy person. <laughs> <laughs> right. You could use some boundaries. Right. It's clear that you are miserable. Right. <laughs> Uh, it would benefit us all, you know. <laughs> so. mm-hmm. And I and I even think too, like oftentimes, I for me growing up, um, I grew up in a um, religious household, Christian, and the notion was there. There were good emotions, right, and then there were bad emotions, right. There'd be happy yeah. and excited and anxious, like those are good emotions, and then anger and sorrow and grief and anxiety or whatever were negative. And so, like when you had those negative emotions, it was our duty to pray so that. God could do whatever they needed to do to remove the emotion from you, right? So then you could then get back on the path of being happy with good emotions. Question, but what I know to be true is that there are plenty examples in the Bible in which Christ was angry and he actually he didn't pray they you know there there was no like inclination in the Bible where they prayed away the anger. Yeah, fact, he they acted some in tables. <laughs> right, right. Turn up some dust. He was kicking up a lot of dust, you know. And so and so like if 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 it if it is true that um for the for the denomination that I was in, if it is true that I was made in the image of God and God demonstrated anger, then there is no need to pray it away because it's a it is a part of me and it's a part of being divine right so i i consider myself to be divine i consider myself to be created and made in the image of a higher power and that includes everything that includes all of it the anger the anxiety the sorrow the pain that you feel the happiness the elation it's all of that and so my role isn't to be steered by anger or to get rid of it my role is to figure out how to use something that is naturally a part of me and wield it in a way that it alleviates suffering you're so great that's what i think (laughs) amazing that that's what you think so great i also think that You talked about self-care. You talked about getting enough sleep and meditating and eating well and taking care of yourself first. But I think that there's also like deeper practices than that that help us stay in the work. So I would love to know what are some of your practices for resilience and sustenance? For me, resilience, um, I believe that I don't have a choice (laughs) when it comes to resilience. I I'm very proud to to believe among many things, being resilient is a part of the DNA for Black folk in general and Black women in particular. The times in which I think like I'm getting worn down or I don't want to play nice <laughs> or the work really, you know, the times where the the work weighs heavy on my shoulders in those moments, I forget where I come from and the legacy that I have. And I forget about my being resilient <laughs> by nature. So the, in those situations, I, I know exactly when I need to tap out, when I'm forgetting things like that, you know, my resilience. 
and I become impatient with people. I become flippant. I'm like, I don't actually, you know, like my words clearly are not rooted in any kind of love. It's just like, get away from me. Like I can see, I can hear it in my, I hear it. And I know like, oh, I need to, I need to recharge. And I think, you know, we have this, it's a beautiful idea and it's a wonderful thing to aspire to, but the, the sense of like beloved community mm-hmm. and the fact about how like community, it, it, it comprises all of us, right? And that and that's great. And so it allows me to be in practice and in a relationship to white people. But for me, when I charge down, I come out of beloved community into a deeper kind of um into a community that just has always been there that catches me when I've I've fallen that like where I can just be me I don't have to do anything in this work and for me what that is and it's funny because I'm currently on vacation and have come out of a loved community to home basically and what that looks like for me is you know coming back to familiar soil to the soil of, of my ancestors it's being able to lean my head on, on my uncle's shoulder or listen to my aunt's laughter as she's telling me a story. It's falling on the bed, you know, a very familiar bed that's held me from childhood up mm-hmm. into, you know, my mature adult years. And it's, it's really spaces that love me unconditionally. And oftentimes I'll go and visit the resting places of whether it's my brother or my father or whomever it's for me that that's the way in which I reconnect to being resilient it's the way in which I allow my my ancestors and my family to remind me of the fact that I have everything I need in me already to do my role in the work of liberation or the work of love or however way you you want to frame it and I, I live far, like I live in on the West Coast. And so for me to, I have to in, in, intentionally like say, I'm going to tap out of the broader beloved community that I've created out in the Bay Area, which is wonderful and make the trek back to my roots to shut down and recharge. Um, so that by the time I come go back to the Bay Area, I've gotten the energy and the love and the reminder that one, there's much work to be done. I'm not dead yet, so I'm, I'm in this work. <laughs> and I've gotten the love and the blessings and the kisses and the, and the good food to sustain me. Mm-hmm. Does that answer the question? Yeah, that's, that's really beautiful. And I, I really appreciate what you just said about a beloved community too, because out of the chaplaincy intensive I was just at, we did a unit on beloved community and it was stated again and again, like beloved community is not a metaphor. Mm-hmm. It's the active work you're doing. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's real. It is not like, and the active work is what tires you down. So it's like, you know, it's needed, right? Because the Olympic community is, that's what, that's what we're trying to get to. And it's active, right? It never, it's, active. it's not, it's not a destination. Yeah. That's the thing, you know? Yeah. It's those relationships that you're building all the time, right? And relationships all along. take a lot yeah. of work, a lot of work. Oh, fantastic. So um, to finish off, I always just basically uh, invite my guests to just offer anything that they want to offer, anything that you weren't able to speak to that you want to, anything that you think would be useful for listeners, anything at all. It's just space for you. Well, I guess, you know, the first thing I would say is I I just want to 
give my gratitude to you for inviting me to have this step into this conversation with you. I've enjoyed it. And I would also say that when we're talking, we talked about so many things, (laughs) whiteness and caucasity and diversity and the pitfalls and liberation. And I I think that the one thing that I, I would close with is the invitation to everyone. If you, if you're committed to the work of racial justice, social justice, liberation, that you also commit to like you, you can't do this work in isolation. So get comfortable with the idea of being accountable to someone and to form relationships that will hold you accountable in a way that is, that's a way of like challenge and support that will love you, but that will hold you to the goal and the work that we all have before us. So that's one thing that, I, that I'm becoming clear about is the role of accountability and I would invite all of us and your listeners as well to really truly begin to align themselves with folks and organizations who will lovingly hold them accountable to their role that they have in this work. Thank you. Most welcome, man. Thank you for having me. Esri Peoples is the principal consultant and founder of Red Lettuce Consulting. You can contact her and hire her to support your organization by visiting red-lotus-consulting.com. I'm incredibly grateful to my many patrons without whom I could not make my practice the focus of my time and attention. Immense appreciation to Gretchen Wagner, Julian and Shannon Hatch, Winita Budgen, Margaret Prescott, Val Delane, Perry Pugh, Annika, Jennifer Harkness, Katie Bredbeck, Laura Mulkern, Michelle Puckett, Sierra Love, and Chrissy Bird. Patrons help me to cover the cost of producing this podcast, but also make it possible for me to do outreach for my chaplaincy, buy art supplies, and have focus time for writing. Visit caitlinschatch.com to see the breadth of my work in the world. The original theme song for this podcast was created by award-winning singer-songwriter Tajai Moore of Moore Music. 